Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26, and if you have your Bible, I encourage you uh, to open up there. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 through 35, and then we're going to be looking at verses uh, uh, 70, or excuse me, 69 through 75. So that's Matthew chapter 26. I want to ask you a question. I want you to think about this, and I want you to think about uh, how should we think about... Uh, how should we respond to the news of when we see a high-profile spiritual leader? How should we process and how should we think when we see a high-profile spiritual leader of a large church or ministry when they crash and burn spiritually? What should that look like for us? Um, a little over a year ago, about a year ago, I guess it was, uh, a guy named Bill Hybels, who uh, pastors, uh, pastored at that time Willow Creek Community Church, came to light. Uh, there were multiple accusations of sexual harassment by a number of different people. Uh, it, it looked like suggestive language. It looked like invitations to his hotel rooms. It looked like uh, long, lingering hugs. It looked like unwanted kisses. That's what it looked like. And so he had to resign his ministry because of that. Uh, another man, his name is Mark Driscoll, uh, who pastored a, a church up in, in Seattle called Mars Hill. Uh, Mark is a fantastic preacher, incredible preacher. I've listened to many of his message, messages. He's, he's, very, he's very, very smart, very smart, um, really smart, and uh, very insightful. But uh, Mark tells the story of how he had to step down. Uh, a couple years ago. He had to step down at Mars Hill. He had to step down because of, um, in his words, arrogance, arrogance, um, conflict that erupted in anger and harsh words with other people, and what he called a, a domineering way of leading his staff and elders. And so he had to step down. Another guy named Perry Noble, Perry uh, pastored the largest church in South Carolina. Uh, at the time that he was pastoring the church, they, he had started the church about 20 years before. They had 17 campuses, over 30,000 people going to the church. And in, Perry's, or in, 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 in Perry Noble's words, he said this. He said, I began to look for my comfort and my rest and my peace in alcohol instead of looking for it in Jesus. Uh, and because of his addiction to alcohol that developed after he became a pastor. Uh, by the way, one in five pastors, one in five pastors admit to struggling with addiction to alcohol uh, and to uh, prescription medication. One in five. Uh, had to step down. And then uh, last week, last Saturday night, as I was driving uh, with some of my buddies back from from Hayward, I found out that uh, a friend of mine uh, in ministry, pastoring a church up in in, uh, in Portland, uh, also teaching at a seminary there, was, was fired both by his church and also fired by the, the seminary uh, because he had been having a couple of affairs with a couple of different women. How should we think? What should we think? How should we respond and react when we hear about the spiritual failure of high-profile spiritual leaders? But more importantly than that, okay, all right, we're having issues.
Chama. I want to do what Matt did last week. Can we start this over again completely from the beginning? No, just kidding. We're not going to do that. I'm sorry. I'm making fun of Matt. That's not fair. All right. So anyway, uh, what, what um, you know, the thing is, is I was asking the question, how should we respond to spiritual leaders, high-profile pastors who crash and burn spiritually? But more importantly, how should we respond and what should we think about our own spiritual failures? You understand what I'm saying here and why this is important? The reason this is important is because it's oftentimes easier to focus on and to make a big deal out of other people's spiritual failures than it is to acknowledge, admit, confess, and repent of our own. Does that make sense? In Matthew chapter 26, we have... Um, the context, Matthew chapter 26, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to be turned over, he's going to be arrested, betrayed uh, to his disciples. Meanwhile, the, the religious leaders, the chief priests, uh, they were, were scheming how they could privately arrest Jesus and have him executed. And uh, what Jesus does is he tells his disciples that one of them is going to betray them. And then what he does with his disciples is they're taking the Passover feast together and he infuses that feast with, with a new meaning. And that brings us to Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. And what happens in the text, and I want you to read this with me. If you have your Bible, I want you to open up to it. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 31. And what the Bible says this is says, it says this. It says, then Jesus told them, he's talking with his disciples. Jesus told them, he said, this very night... This very night, you will fall away on account of me. You're going to fall away. You will fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. You hear that? Uh, Peter says, even if everybody else falls away, I won't. I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Truly, uh, in, but Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. All the other disciples said the same. Um, and a few verses later, the Bible tells about how Judas came to Jesus and they had gone to the Garden of Gethsemane and, and, and Jesus prayed and he prayed, he prayed repeatedly. He prayed three different times, Father, if it's will, please. He said, he said, Father, if there's any way possible, please, I pray that the cup of your wrath will pass me by, that I will not have to drink of it. And then three different times, Jesus says, but not my will, but your will be done. That's how Jesus prays. And in the middle of that, Jesus is inviting his disciples to pray. And he comes and he finds them asleep. And on the second occasion, he comes to Peter and he says, Could you not pray with me for one hour? He says, Watch and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. And he asks them to pray. 
And then finally, after he comes back a third time, finds them asleep. He tells them, he tells them, uh, he says, rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And Judas comes and betrays Jesus with a kiss. And what happens is all the disciples, they, they, they run away and they leave Jesus alone. They leave him alone with those who are arresting him. All these men, Jesus has said, tonight you will fall away. You will desert me. And they said, they all insisted, not me. Not me. I won't. I'm not going to do that. And they all deserted him. But Peter followed at a distance. He, he followed at a distance, and he watched as Jesus was tried. And he watched as Jesus was condemned as being worthy of death. And the scripture tells us that he watched. He watched as they spit in his face. He watched as they struck Jesus with their fist. He watched as they slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you. Verse 69, now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, and she said, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went on to the the gateway where another servant girl, because girls are so intimidating to men, you know, they are. He went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow is with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it a second time. A second time. With an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. He was from Arkansas. <laughs> Your accent gives you away. That's the kind of the way they thought of Galilee, okay? It was kind of like the Arkansas of Israel back then. Um, and, uh, and, and they said, your accent gives you away. And he, he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. A rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the words that Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Wow. How should we think about spiritual leaders who crash and burn? And more importantly, how should we think about ourselves? Today, what I want to do is I want to look at a couple of things. I want to look at what is the path the spiritual failure look like? I think there might be some things we can learn from Peter's failure that could be helpful for us to kind of look out for in our own personal lives. But I also want us to look at the story of Peter and what we can learn from him about the path to restoration. And first of all, what does the path to spiritual failure look like? And I I think that the first step on the path to spiritual failure, what it looks like is it looks like denial. It just looks like denial. That what what Jesus does is he comes to his disciples. He says, he says, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. But what does Peter do in verse thirty three? It says, but but Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. You see, the the path to spiritual failure, I believe, begins with denial, maybe even a little bit of pride. 
I won't. I won't dishonor God like that. I'm not going to do that. I won't deny Jesus. I won't desert Jesus. I won't. I won't be involved in sexual harassment. I. I'm not going to be a bully around other people. I. I I'm not going to be an alcoholic. I, I'm not going to have an adulterous affair with another person. I want, I want denial. Denial. By the way, if you think you would never fail Jesus in any of these ways, you have something in common with the disciples. They honestly thought they would not. They honestly thought they would not leave and desert Jesus. They had, they were just as sincere They were just as sincere in their belief that they would not desert Jesus. Hmm. Every once in a while, I'll hear um, hear a guy, and and I always wonder, well, every once in a while I hear a guy say, I don't struggle with lust. I'll hear a guy say that, and I'm like, let me check you for a pulse rate here, okay? I don't struggle with lust. You know, I, I remember as, and I've told this story, and it's worth telling again because it, it, it impacted me. It shaped me early in my ministry. I was 31, 32 years old. I was a, a grad student at, at Dallas Theological Seminary, and one of my heroes was a guy named John Reed, Dr. Reed. Dr. Reed was a very old man. He was like 65. <laughs> Six years older than I am right now, all right? You know, and I, you know, I remember Dr. Reed comes in, and, and most of what I know about preaching, and not saying I'm a very good preacher, but most of what I know about preaching I learned from Dr. Reed. And, but I learned a lot more from Dr. Reed than I, about preaching. I learned about, I just learned about life. Dr. Reed was the kind of man I wanted to become. I wanted to be like Dr. Reed. He was like, you know, one of my heroes. And I remember Dr. Reed came in one day, and he was preparing to lecture on preaching. And then he, uh, he's getting his notes ready and stuff like that. And then he just kind of paused and he said, he said, you know, guys, um, the other day I had a young woman come to me. She's about 40 years old, very, very attractive, very beautiful, beautiful, beautiful woman. And uh, she, uh, she let me know that she was available, you know, available, you know, kind of, kind of like, you know, available for like an affair. And he said, you know, I, I, I've, never, uh, I've never had an affair. I've never had an affair. I, I've never been with another woman since I've been married to my wife. And, and I've thought to myself, I thought, I thought, I thought you know, this, John, this might be your last best chance. This might be your last best chance. But I've heard two versions of the story from two different mentors of mine. This may be your last best chance to have an affair with a beautiful woman. And then Dr. Reed said this. I wonder what I'm going to do. All right, guys, open your books. And he proceeded into the lecture. I didn't hear anything else he said that day. I sitting here and I'm thinking to myself, I, you know, I was, I, he was my hero. He was the kind of man that I wanted to become. And I was thinking, I was kind of hoping when I would, would be 65 in his age following Jesus for a long time, that maybe I would be a beyond that pull, that pull in my life. 
Um, you know, what I would say to someone who says, well, that's not really my problem, is this. Is that right now, it's not my problem either. First of all, I'm in front of all you guys talking about it, okay? But what about when a beautiful young woman makes that kind of an offer? Could it become a problem for us then? You understand what I'm saying here? When we think that we could never fail God in that way, whatever that way is for you, I don't know what that way is. Okay, it could be the affair thing. It could be denying Jesus thing. It could be deserting Jesus. It could be, I don't know, whatever it is for you, alcoholism, whatever it is that you think, I could never dishonor God like that. It could be that just because it's not your problem doesn't mean it can't be your problem. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Beware of denial and pride. There's a a second step, I believe, on the path to spiritual failure. That second step looks like this. It looks like defensiveness. It looks like defensiveness. So what what happens when, when, you know, Peter says, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. And Jesus says this. He says, truly, Peter, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Three times. And how does Peter respond? He responds with great humility and wisdom, doesn't he? He says, you're right, Jesus. Isn't that how he responds? No, he responds defensively. He says, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. You see, there's a defensiveness. There's a defensiveness. And and I think that when denial and pride gives way to defensiveness, we're taking that second step towards spiritual failure. And there's a third step here as well. And I believe what that third step looks like is I think it looks like inattentiveness. Inattentiveness in prayer. The very next text in Matthew 26 is about Jesus going into prayer with his disciples. The difference is they go to sleep and he goes to pray. They go to sleep and he goes to pray. And he prays not one time. He prays not two times. How many times does he pray? Three times. And and what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, watch and pray. That you may not enter into temptation. And I think when we're not watchful and when we're not a prayer and and when we are not attentive in prayer, we become especially vulnerable to temptation. That the the path to spiritual failure, it it begins with maybe denial and some pride. And in, in the second step, it looks like defensiveness about our vulnerability. But that third step is that inattentiveness in prayer. The question is, where are you at right now? Where are you at on that path? I also want us to look at not just what does the path to spiritual failure look like, looks like, but I also want us to look at, I want us to talk about what does the path to restoration look like? And uh, I want to turn to another text of Scripture, John chapter 21. If you have your Bible, open up to John chapter 21. And remember what John, or Jesus had said to his disciples when he told them that they were going to desert him. He said uh, that after 
after I have been risen from the dead, I will go ahead of you, meaning that he's wanting them to join, join them in Galilee. John 21 is about Galilee. That's what John 21 is about. Jesus told them, he, he told them, you're all going to die me. But once I've risen from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. In John 21, now he's in Galilee. And the Bible tells us in John 21, this is now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection. And Jesus presents himself to his disciples. And in John chapter 21, beginning in verse 15, the Bible says this. It says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Then Jesus asked him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter answered, Yes, Lord, you know, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And then the third time, the third time, the third time, Jesus said to Peter, he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And the scripture says that Peter was hurt, grieved, sorrowful. Because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Three times. Three times Jesus is denied by Peter. And three times uh, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? That, that what, what Jesus does is he gives him gives Peter an opportunity to reaffirm his love for him. To reaffirm his love for him once for each time of denial. And what I'm going to say is the path to res- restoration. I'm going to say that the path to restoration, it looks like grief. It does. It looks like sorrow. Oh, if you go back to Matthew chapter 26 and you look at the last verse there, verse 75, and what the Bible says that after, Jesus, or after Peter had denied Jesus the third time, the Bible says of Peter that he went out and he what? He wept. He was grieved. And now with Jesus asking him that third time, do you love me? What happens? It says that he was grieved. He was grieved. And the path to restoration looks kind of like this. The path to restoration looks like a gracious encounter with a loving Savior. That's what it looks like. It doesn't look like a lot of things you do. It doesn't look like, you know, three simple steps. It just looks like a gracious encounter with a loving Savior. That, that Jesus meets us at rock bottom. He restores us and he invites us to join him in living his mission. That's what restoration looks like. You know, it, it's really fascinating. I, I, I was, as I was studying and reflecting and thinking about this text of Scripture, in, in John 21, uh, Jesus calls Peter Simon. He calls him Simon. He doesn't call him Peter. He calls him Simon. See, that was, that was Peter's original name. His original name was Simon. 
And, and it's very interesting is that John 21 finishes with Jesus restoring Peter, calling him Simon. But it begins in John chapter 21, Jesus invites Peter to follow him. And he calls him Simon, but he names him Cephas, Ketha, or in Greek Petros, what we translate as Peter today, which means rock. That, that what, what Jesus does is, is that Jesus takes this guy, Simon, and he calls him rock. You know, it's like, you know, Rocky or the rock or whatever, you know, that he is the rock. But when, when Jesus calls Simon rock, the rock, he does that knowing exactly what's going to happen. You see, Jesus names Peter the rock when he knows that the rock is going to fail him. Not one time, and not two times, but three different times. Jesus already knows the failure of Peter is coming, but he calls him the rock, not because he knows that, 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 that he's going to fail Jesus, but because Jesus knows he's going to restore Peter. You see, in, in that moment, a couple of thoughts here, a couple, couple of thoughts, random thoughts, random thoughts, random thoughts. A couple of thoughts. One is, I believe that sometimes God, and in these borrowed words from Tony Evans, better preacher than I am, borrowed words, but Tony Evans says this. He says, sometimes God lets us hit rock bottom to see that Jesus is the rock at the bottom. Sometimes God lets us hit rock bottom, especially when we're proud and in denial. Sometimes God, when we're proud and we're in denial, God lets us hit rock bottom to see that, you know, my resolve, my fierce resolve is not enough. But Jesus is. And sometimes God lets us hit rock bottom to see that Jesus is the rock at the bottom. In, in another thought, and this is a borrowed thought, thought again. It's from a guy named Robert Muntz, who's with the Lord now, but used to be a New Testament scholar, a theologian. But Robert Muntz said this. He said uh, about the naming of, of Peter, he made this comment, that, that basically this is that Jesus sees us not in terms of what we are, but in terms of what we can be. Not a, Jesus sees us not in terms of what we are, but in terms of what we can be. How should we respond when we watch a high-profile spiritual leader of a megachurch crash and burn spiritually? You know, I think sometimes we're going to be sad. I think sometimes we're going to feel really, really disappointed. Sometimes we may even feel angry. Might even feel angry. Well, one thing that we need to be very, very careful of is becoming smug. Uh, you know, I always knew there was something about that guy. I always kind of suspected something was going to, like this was going to happen. I knew it was just a matter of time. I knew that. need to be very, very careful we don't become smug. Uh, what we do need to do is we need to be humble. We need to be very, very humble. How should we respond when a spiritual leader crashes and burns? I think it depends a lot on how that leader responds to Jesus in that failure and how God works through him. What I will tell you this is that I have seen with a few men, not a lot, but what I have seen with a few men, that sometimes God's greatest work in their life comes after 
a great failure. But sometimes God's greatest work in our lives, by the way, Peter's the example. The greatest work that God did through Peter was not what happened in his life before his greatest failure. It was after his greatest failure. I mean, it's after his greatest failure that he preaches at Pentecost and 3,000 people are saved. It's after his failure, and I should say not after his failure, but after Christ's restoration. After Christ's restoration that God does his greatest work. So how should we think about spiritual failure in our lives? I don't know where you're at today. Maybe one or more of you today, you're struggling with something that really happened this last week. You know, maybe you, you know, I I don't know. Maybe I don't know what's gone in your life this last week. I don't know what's going to happen in your life this week. This is, but what I want to say is that, that in Christ, in Christ there's hope. And that sometimes God does his greatest work in our lives uh, after, after our greatest failures. What does restoration look like? What does the path to restoration look like? It looks like a gracious encounter with a loving Savior. And today, do you need that? Today... Uh, I'd like to encourage you, if you've never put your hope, your confidence in Jesus, to do that. Today, if maybe, you know, you've been having a really bad week or a really bad month or a really bad year, and you are hungry, hungry for change in your life and you want to see God work, then this morning I invite you to pray with me and ask God to do that work to restore you, to come with humility, come with godly sorrow, godly sorrow, and let God restore you. Let's pray. God, today, uh, again, we want to worship you because you are a holy God. You are, you are a holy God. You are righteous in all of your judgments. You are great and awesome. And, and, and God, but you are also gracious and merciful. You are a God who restores broken people. That you can bring wholeness to our brokenness. You can bring fullness to our emptiness. You can bring holiness to our, our unholiness. Uh, Lord, we, we just want to, um, we want to draw near to you. We want to be humble, not proud. We want to be able to acknowledge our own vulnerability to sin. Uh, God, we want to be responsive to you and not defensive. And, God, we want to learn to to be attentive in prayer. And we just want to draw near to you and worship you. And I pray this in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen.